Welcome to Skim This. We're starting off by looking at this week's major headlines, including the Supreme Court taking up a major abortion case, President Biden taking a spin behind the wheel of an electric truck, and the House of Representatives taking a stand on hate crimes. Speaking of Capitol Hill, nearly two weeks of Israeli-Palestinian fighting has caused fighting among U.S. lawmakers. We'll break down what's going on with America's diplomatic relationship with Israel and what some politicians are hoping to change. Later, if you're vaxxed and ready to book a vacation, we'll tell you why you may want to get on that ASAP. And if you've heard the word inflation recently, but need a refresher on what exactly inflation is, stick around. We're here to make you smarter and the news less overwhelming. Let's skim this. All right, let's get to a few headlines from the week's news and give you some context on what's going on. First up. The U.S. Supreme Court has agreed today to hear arguments in a major abortion case from Mississippi. Here's the context. Back in 2018, Mississippi's governor signed a law banning most abortions after 15 weeks. That's about nine weeks shy of the approximately 24 weeks permitted under Roe v. Wade. In response, Mississippi's only abortion clinic sued to overturn the law and won, but then the state appealed the verdict. Now, the Supreme Court is going to determine if a state-level law like this Mississippi one that restricts abortion access and makes no exceptions for rape or incest is constitutional. This case is a test for the most conservative Supreme Court in decades, which features three relative newbies, Neil Gorsuch, Brett Kavanaugh, and Amy Coney Barrett, who were all appointed by former President Trump. Though the court likely won't have a decision until at least next spring, so prepare for a long waiting game with really high stakes. Meanwhile, Mississippi is far from the only state introducing restrictions on abortion as the Supreme Court waits to make its ruling. Dozens of anti-abortion bills have already been introduced this year in states like Tennessee, Montana, and South Carolina. And this week, Texas joined them when Governor Greg Abbott signed a bill into law prohibiting abortion as early as six weeks. All right, next headline. The House just voted to create a bipartisan commission to investigate the January 6th Capitol riot, but it could face a challenge in the Senate. Here's what you need to know. Almost five months after a mob attacked the U.S. Capitol, some lawmakers have been asking what happened here. But even agreeing on how to investigate what happened and stop it from happening again is proving tricky. 35 House Republicans have backed the creation of a bipartisan commission to study the attack. The bill passed the House, but the Senate is a different story. Senate Democrats need at least 10 Republicans to side with them for this to pass. On Tuesday, Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell said he was open to listening to details about the plan. But after Trump called the commission a Democrat trap on Tuesday night, by Wednesday, McConnell made his opposition to the plan public. That change of heart could signal that the creation of this commission is becoming yet another test of Republican Party loyalty to former President Trump, which still seems pretty strong. Here's something else you might have heard about this week. The COVID-19 Hate Crimes Act is now the law of the land. Here's the context. This bill was introduced after a rise in hate crimes against the AAPI community during the pandemic. The Senate passed the bill last month, the House this week, and it was signed by President Biden just before we taped today. This law requires the Justice Department to appoint an official to speed up review of possible hate crimes. It also aims to make reporting hate crimes easier by providing law enforcement with resources to collect online reports and report incidents via a standardized system. 
Okay, last headline. President Biden went for a ride in a pickup this week. This sucker's quick. Though surprisingly quiet at high speeds. That was President Biden zipping around in an electric pickup truck this week at a Ford factory in Michigan. He visited right before the car company unveiled an electric version of its best-selling F-Series pickup. Biden was there to promote his infrastructure plan, which would boost electric vehicle use. And even if his goal wasn't to promote the actual car itself, it might have had that effect. Ford CEO told CNBC the company's already received over 20,000 pre-orders. And who doesn't want a truck with a frunk? That's what Ford calls the new storage area under the hood of the truck where there's no longer a big engine. You get it, right? Front trunk, frunk. But considering Ford's F-Series has been one of the country's best-selling vehicles for decades, with hundreds of thousands of trucks sold each year, there's still a long road ahead before most of these gas guzzlers go green. Okay, switching gears. All eyes are on when the current 11-day flare-up in Israeli-Palestinian fighting will end. President Biden has been busy making some phone calls, telling Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu he expects a significant de-escalation on the road to a ceasefire. And right as we were publishing this, it looks like a ceasefire could happen. For people in the region, that couldn't come soon enough. So far, more than 200 people, most of them Palestinians, are reported to have been killed, including dozens of children. And even if a ceasefire holds, the violence we've seen in the last few days has sparked heightened global interest in this conflict and in its underlying causes. While on Capitol Hill, this conflict has ignited new conversations among lawmakers about the U.S.-Israel relationship. To get some context about how this international conflict has caused domestic disagreement, we phoned up Anna Palmer. She's the CEO and founder of Punchbowl News, the host of the Daily Punch podcast, and a veteran reporter on Capitol Hill. FYI, we spoke this morning, before the news about a potential ceasefire came out. Anna Palmer, welcome to Skim This. Thanks so much for having me. I want to get started by just asking about some context. Traditionally on Capitol Hill, it seemed, at least up until recently, there's been a bipartisan consensus around support for the Israeli government. Am I thinking about those dynamics correctly? Yeah, I think we're seeing a real shift from where both Republicans and Democrats have been over the last several administrations, which has been very, to your point, strong, steadfast support in large part for Israel. And, and that's quickly changed. And who is that changing for? Is this mainly intra-party fighting among Democrats? So I think you're definitely seeing Republicans continuing to very strongly back Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. We've seen Mitch McConnell, Republican leader from Kentucky, go to the floor and really make very strong statements there. But what's been interesting is we did see today there has been some shifting of Todd Young, who's another senator, a Republican, who had joined a bipartisan letter calling for a ceasefire. And he's now stepped off of that. So there's a little bit of of, a fight on the right just to how kind of hardline they are in support of Israel. And on the Democratic side, we're really seeing that debate play out in real time from more of the establishment Democratic position pro-Israel to more of the progressives saying, wait, stop, this is not right. This is human rights abuses and things like that. Are there examples of any representatives or senators who are 
veterans of politics who are changing their minds here? Or is this mainly kind of newer representatives in the House or in the Senate? I think it's what we're seeing as more is newer representatives. But I do think it's been interesting. One of the things that we've noted in Punchbowl News in, in some of our newsletters in recent days is the fact that Chuck Schumer, the Senate Majority Leader, a very pro-Israel history, has been fairly quiet on the issue. He hasn't taken a, a big stance in kind of a real public way of trying to lead either the president or push the president to be more aggressive on the pro-Israel side of things. And so I think you're seeing a lot of these internal dynamics play out. But in large part, you did have the vast majority of Senate Democrats, you know, signing a letter to say, it's time for a ceasefire. This is not uh, appropriate and trying to push Israel in that way. Was there a specific event or point in the past two weeks that some politicians are pointing to when they're saying, I'm rethinking my position here? Like, was it the AP building being attacked? Was it just seeing the death tolls of children? I'm curious if there was like a moment people are talking about. I think both of those things contributed to it. I think one, the fact that they went after a building uh, where that basically leveled the free press that both the Associated Press and Al Jazeera were housed in and just the concept of getting information about what is exactly happening there was definitely something that you kind of saw an international response to. I also think to your point, the number of children that have been hurt and killed is something that's been really hard to watch. And I think the other thing is basically Israel's kind of decision over the last, although it does appear that maybe a ceasefire could be coming, but over the last week and a half or so, they just continue to really go as aggressively as possible. And I think that also, those three combination points really put some Democrats in a position where they felt very frustrated by Israel and what they were doing. Is there anything meaningful about the U.S.-Israeli relationship that could change as a result of these divisions? I don't know. I think the one thing to really watch and one thing that we watch is looking at some of the military funding and the weapon systems that the U.S. has traditionally supported and provided to Israel. And so I do think you're going to see, and there's been calls among Democrats to provide a bit more scrutiny here, not just to write checks and have some checks and balances there. So I do think that is going to be a long tail reaction. But as far as kind of how close Israel and the U.S. relationship is, it appears to be, you know, continue to be very strong. The president has been engaging pretty aggressively on that as well. Speaking of the president, what has been the White House position so far over the past two weeks? This is one of those incidences on the international stage and probably the first for the now president, Joe Biden, to have to deal with uh, a a kind of a, a really thorny issue of trying to use shuttle diplomacy. I think we saw in the beginning of this that he preferred to have more of a background role, kind of try to work through allies and put pressure on Netanyahu to work towards a ceasefire. And then he's rapidly had to, in the most recent days, take a more aggressive stance. And, you know, we parse words here in Washington, but the fact that he didn't demand a ceasefire for several days was something that a lot of Democrats were looking at. Finally, it sounds like you're not expecting a major change in U.S. support for Israel, but it also feels like we're in somewhat uncharted territory And people are talking about the Israeli-Palestinian conflict in new ways, especially on social media. Could we be in just like a new era of how Americans and their representatives are thinking about this conflict? I think it's hard to make sweeping pronouncements about what's going to happen in terms of how people are thinking about it in, you know, less than two weeks 
old conflict. I do think you're right on the money in terms of thinking about and, and something that I think we're all going to be watching going forward is how does this conflict, one, end, and then two, looking at what comes out of that? Does this change the dynamic? Are there going to be Democrats and, and others that are willing to kind of reframe the conversation? And that's just something I think time will only tell. Anna Palmer, thank you so much. This week, we came across a headline that made us, and maybe some of you, go, huh? A Navy air crew struggles to lock on to a fast-moving object off the U.S. Atlantic coast in 2015. Anomalous uh, aerial vehicles, uh, what I guess in the vernacular you, you call them UFOs. Over the weekend, 60 Minutes aired a segment on UFOs, or as military personnel call them, unidentified aerial phenomenon. Some of what was talked about in the 60 Minutes piece isn't new, like talk of pill-shaped flying objects or hovering triangles that moved around in ways that human technology can't, or at least publicly known human technology. But what is new here is that these UFO reports aren't just appearing on internet forums. 60 Minutes is a serious news program, and they were hardly interviewing conspiracy theorists. They talked to a former Navy pilot, a former Pentagon official, and a former combat veteran who's never spoken about her encounter before. And all of them said this kind of sighting has happened repeatedly. Also new is that the U.S. government recently stopped saying UFOs aren't real. Last month, the Department of Defense confirmed that images of UAPs taken by Navy personnel in 2019 were legit, and that the military doesn't know what they are. Even former President Barack Obama said in an interview this week, footage of UFOs exists, but we don't really know anything beyond that. Which is maybe the most underwhelming part of all of this UFO talk, that what's unknown is still so much greater than what is known. However, more answers could soon be on the way. Next month, the Pentagon will release a major report sharing what it knows about these objects, and a growing number of politicians are taking the UFO issue seriously, talking about it as a possible national security threat instead of as a joke. All of which means maybe UFOs won't be unidentified for long. Hey, thanks for listening so far. If you're a fan of this podcast, we've got some news. We're looking for another producer to join our team. Someone who's a news junkie, obsessed with audio, and eager to work alongside fellow journalists, pitching and fact-checking stories, producing interviews, and doing it all in a way that cuts through the noise. If you know anyone interested, send them our way. Check out theskim.com slash careers for more info and look for a job titled Audio Producer 2. We've also left a link to this job in our show notes. All right, let's get back to the show. With school semesters ending, masks coming off, and the weather actually cooperating, it finally feels like summer is here. Which means hello summer vacations. Escaping our homes, hiking in national parks, hitting the beach, or seeing a new city. Except, it looks like a lot of places are getting pretty booked up. And what's still available is going to cost you. As the vaccine rollout continues and the temperatures warm up, some Americans are itching to get out. Airfares are up with last year's $39 flights long gone and rental car prices are spiking. Folks are trying to travel 
and either have to fork over large sums or they just have to deal with the fact that cars are not available at all. There are a few factors making this summer's travel season so expensive. First, we obviously all want to get out of our houses. And now that more people are getting vaxxed, they're less nervous about planning a vacation. One study from TripAdvisor found that of people who didn't travel in 2020, 61% said they're comfortable taking a trip this year. And more than half of people who earned over $50,000 a year said they were thinking about getting on a domestic flight this summer. And it's not just people looking to GTFO after a year of lockdown. In another poll from Booking.com, 61% of Americans said that travel was crucial to their emotional well-being. So we get it. People are antsy. But who's leading the charge here? According to TripAdvisor, it's millennials, which we gotta say isn't exactly surprising. We are seeing certainly our bigger properties are being booked by bachelorette parties and bachelor parties. That's Darlene, an Airbnb host who manages rental properties in Austin and a few other spots around Texas. She says it's not just 20 and 30-somethings looking to let off some steam. She's also seeing a surge in rentals for family reunions. I think people are just so excited to see each other that they're extending a little bit outside their bubble. First, it was just like the nuclear family, and now we're seeing more bookings with like uncles and other relatives. And Darlene told us, with so many people already having booked vacations, the rest of us are left looking later on the calendar and are booking trips way in advance, something that wasn't happening last summer. People are starting to book further out this time of year than they were last year. We were seeing bookings really last minute last year, probably no more than two weeks in advance usually. And now people are starting to finally book in the fall months. Plus, with limited options left to book already, people are being less choosy, including about safety. To be honest, a lot of guests don't necessarily ask what the cleaning procedure or cleaning process is. As for those who are still cautious, I've had people who are, you know, they don't want to be in there, whether it's 24 or 48 hours after the previous guest, so they'll just book an extra night. If you've got the travel bug, it's important to know things are getting booked up pretty fast. And it's not just Airbnbs. Hotels, bars, and restaurants are also seeing a big uptick in demand and are even struggling to staff up to meet a new wave of customers. And don't even get us started on dealing with flights. Airlines are upping their prices as demand increases again. So say goodbye to those $30 flights we saw last year. Adding to that, there's rental car companies, which sold off some of their vehicles during the pandemic and now can't buy new cars because of computer chip shortages. So they've been raising their prices too. Which is having some consequences for local residents. Like in Hawaii, where rental car rates as high as $700 a day have sent some clever tourists running to pick up a cheaper option a U-Haul. Talk about moving around in style, though bad news for people actually looking to move. And now that the European Union has said we're open for vaccinated tourists this summer, flying to a European city where you don't need to rent a car may feel like the better option. Let's talk about a word that's been coming up a lot. Inflation. Very large increases in inflation. The big drivers of inflation are all sort of piling up. Record-breaking increases. We're at a bigger turning point. Inflation. Inflation shock. Okay, we'll admit, CNBC news anchors can sometimes be a bit dramatic. 
So instead of getting all panicky and cable newsy about it, let's take a chiller approach to explaining inflation. All right, hit that not breaking news music. What's inflation? Glad you asked. Inflation is the general increase in the cost of everyday items, which leads to a gradual decrease in your money's purchasing power. Here's an example. A can of Coca-Cola. It's 12 ounces. That's Kristen Brody, a fellow in the Metropolitan Policy Program at the Brookings Institution. And since like 1983, I think that's the last time they changed their formulation from sugar to high fructose corn syrup. But other than that, it has literally been the very same. But the price has gone up. It's gone up from, I don't know, 35 cents to 50 cents. to now it's a dollar, right? The formulation hasn't changed, but the price has gone up, right? So that to me represents inflation. There's a little more to measuring inflation than looking at the price of soda, but not too much more. Inflation is measured month to month or year to year by looking at something called the Consumer Price Index. To understand the CPI, think of an imaginary basket of goods. Things that most households have or that most people use. So what is the price of a television or refrigerator? What's the price of milk or Coca-Cola? We look at how much that particular basket costs the average household over whatever time period so that it can be compared across time. Turns out, what's in that basket has been getting a little more expensive lately. We'll talk about how much more expensive in a bit, but first, let's explore why this is happening. One driver of inflation that usually gets talked about the most, especially by politicians, is that the government is effectively printing more money. Take stimulus checks that the government had to borrow money in order to pay for. Before the pandemic, the money for those checks didn't exist, and now it does. And now that three rounds of COVID stimulus checks have been sent out, many Americans have more money to spend on the same number of things. So that's one factor making a dollar today less valuable than it was a year ago. A second driver of possible inflation is that some people have more money for reasons that are only indirectly related to government actions or not related at all. Since the start of the pandemic, many Americans have been saving more or paying off debt, leaving them with more left over for themselves. For a short period of time, these two factors can sometimes leave people with a kind of cool window of opportunity, with more dollars to spend and everything kind of costing the same. But these usually don't last long. And even when that window is open, Brody says it's mostly for one class of Americans, which she calls the knowledge class. The knowledge class is the people who make good money, have a college education, are able to telework. They did not have to spend money on gas. They did not have dry cleaning because they were working from home. So for those people, they saved a lot more than they would have while they continued to be able to work and possibly be more productive and earn even more money because they had the commuting time, right? I'm speaking about myself. I made a lot of money on Robinhood that I would not have been able to make because I would have been driving to work. The third thing that can lead to inflation has to do more with the people who manufacture and sell things than the people who buy them. So imagine a business. It's been making the same product for years with pretty much the same number of employees. Pam Beasley has been with us um, forever, right Pam? Well. With the same wages. I think I deserve a raise. Oh, Daryl. 
and charging the public the same amount of money for that product. Hello, this is Dwight Schrute from the Dunder Mifflin Paper Company. Wow, that's great, because I need paper. But when the pandemic hit, things changed. Some businesses are raising wages to remain competitive. And with higher payrolls or higher cleaning costs, some businesses raised prices. Not to mention, COVID also disrupted global supply chains, making it more expensive for businesses to get the materials they need. And as businesses realize members of the public are ready to start shopping again, they might decide, hey, if we raise prices, they'll still buy what we're selling. As we kind of hinted at, all three of these potential contributing factors to inflation are in play to some extent right now. But is inflation really this bad? Inflation, inflation shock. Before we hear from Brody, we should point out the Consumer Price Index, that basket of goods we talked about earlier, jumped in price by 0.8% between March and April. That was the percentage that got cable news anchors so fired up. Let's look at the year-over-year change. While inflation is technically up more than 4% this April compared with last April, that's kind of a misleading comparison. The economy had just crashed last April, with tons of Americans out of work. People's finances were more uncertain then, so prices were down. The better comparison, Brody says, is to look at the inflation rate before the pandemic, which was 2.3%, not something cable news anchors and politicians were really talking about. Brody says, sure, inflation has risen since then. Supply chain issues are real, and some Americans do have extra cash and are ready to spend it. But Brody doesn't think the increase is all that dramatic, and she thinks there might be an agenda behind some of the inflation panic. That fear-mongering is used to not provide benefits or saying that if we do this, inflation is going to go up. It's just not real. What we should be paying attention to, she says, is the fact that not every American is in that knowledge class. More Americans remain out of work now than before the pandemic. A lot of businesses closed, wiping out people's savings. And a lot of people weren't able to work from home, meaning they were still paying for fuel costs, dry cleaning, and possibly childcare when the schools closed down. And while inflation isn't great for anyone, Brody thinks we've got bigger issues. Until everybody has a job and has a livable wage and is back to work, I can't imagine why we'd be talking about inflation at all. Still, people are talking about it. What the U.S. might do to try to stop inflation is TBD. For now, the White House is saying, we think rising inflation is likely to continue for a few months, but it should be temporary. And they're saying, frankly, our main focus is still fighting COVID, getting people back to work, and rebuilding the economy. So simmer down. But some of the drivers of inflation, especially supply chain issues, probably aren't going away immediately. And that means you'll likely hear more caffeine-fueled CNBC headlines or more politicians calling on the Biden administration to end its COVID stimulus in order to stop inflation. Regardless of who wins that debate, at The Skim, we're always looking out for your wallet. Go to theskim.com money for tips on how you can prep your wallet for rising costs. Before we go today, we wanted to share a little career wisdom from Stacey Abrams and reintroduce you to our other podcast, Skim from the Couch. If you've gotten this far into Skim This, you're going to love it. Skim from the Couch is your weekly career podcast hosted by the co-founders and co-CEOs of The Skim, Carly Zakin and Danielle Weisberg. 
This week on the show, we spoke to Stacey Abrams, who you probably know from her run for governor of Georgia in 2018 and for her voting rights work. Oh, we should also mention she writes romance novels on the side and unapologetically says she'd like to be the president someday. With so much on her plate, we wanted to know how does she keep her goals organized? The short answer is a spreadsheet, like the thing you make on Excel for work, but just for you and your most serious ambitions. So first you have to write it down. You have to concretize your desires. Otherwise, they're just wishes. But when you write it down, you give it form in in a literal sense, but you also give yourself an anchor. This is the thing I want. But then the next job is to figure out how do you get there? It is not enough to say you want it. You have to figure out how you plan to get it. And then you have to look at the list of things that you have to have to get there and decide, are you willing to do those things? If you are, what's the plan? And if you're not, how badly do you really want it? Because so often we stop ourselves at the point of idea or the first set of requirements instead of thinking, okay, do these requirements mean I can't get it or I can't have it now? I need to know what are the things I need to do to get there. And then I need to track where I am at getting there. Because sometimes what you find along the way is I don't really want it. Abrams applies that level of rigor to her own career most notably in deciding which political jobs she should pursue. I started to think about, could I possibly one day be governor? I didn't know that it was possible. So then I thought, what are the jobs other than governor that can get me where I think I need to be to have this sort of statewide impact? And so I thought about each of those jobs and what it would take. It was why I decided early on in my life, I didn't want to go to Congress. I would have imagined Congress to be on my list of things, the Senate. I have no interest ever, ever. And that's not a lack of ambition. It's a decision that the things that you need to do and the person you need to be and the job that you get to have, I don't want that job. And it is just as important to know what you don't want as it is to know what you want. Because if the things that you don't want are necessary to get to where you want to be, you're going to make dumb choices when you're doing something you don't want to do. And Abrams told us, don't keep your ambitions to yourself. Unlike a lot of politicians, she's just said, yeah, I want to be in the White House one day. That honesty, she says, is strategic. And she recommended ways that anyone, no matter what industry you're in, can also use honesty as a tool. You always have to begin with an acknowledgement of where you are. I am a manager, but my aspiration is to be prepared to run a company of my own one day. What I want to do in this job is learn how to be so good at this job that I'm prepared for that next job. And so you want to set it out not only as aspiration, but as a marker for your manager to help you. If people know what you want, they can help you get there. They can do everything in their power to stop you, or they can just watch you. If they're watching you, those aren't really people you have to focus too much attention on. If they're trying to stop you, you need to understand why. And if you can negate their effect, great. If you can't, then just try to stay out of their way. But then the people who can help you, those are the ones you cultivate. And you cultivate them not out of naked greed, but out of learning. I declare what I want because it helps me get access to the things I need to get better at that job. And then to think about what the next job is. And so, yes, 
you want to be clear because ambition in the workplace is a good, but it should never be ambition that says, I'm so focused on the next thing I want that I'm not going to do the job I have. To hear more from Stacey Abrams and other female leaders, subscribe to Skim from the Couch wherever you've already figured out how to listen to Skim This. New episodes drop every Wednesday. Thanks for listening to Skim This. This podcast was skimmed by Luke Vargas and me, Alex Carr, with additional help from Kira Long. This episode was engineered by Andrew Calloway. The Skim's head of audio is Graylin Brashear. Skim This will be back in your feed again next Thursday. Until then, for more Skim and to sign up for our daily newsletter, head on over to theskim.com. <laughs>